Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this midweek edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Kling, working behind the scenes. Coming up on today's show, an interview with Melissa Wong, CEO of Retail Zipline. Retail Zipline is a communications platform really changing the way retail companies communicate, not only in terms of from corporate to the individual stores, but also within the stores themselves. Melissa will join us to talk about the different communication dynamics within a retail store. And it's quite interesting because honestly, this is something overlooked by a lot of communication platforms and so important to look at retail as the truly unique industry it is. We'll also look ahead to JD Sports purchasing Shoe Palace, that news coming down this week. And in our news segment, we'll talk about Fed data and macro information that we got this week, which we don't often do here on the podcast. A reminder that if you like us, you can certainly rate us on whichever platform you access us. Those ratings, again, if you like us, help others to find our podcast. And again, we have a huge amount of new listeners really over the last three months. So thank you all for downloading and listening to the podcast. We certainly could not do this without the power of our listeners. Additionally, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So let's talk about that Fed data. Honestly, a lot of the headlines came out and they were negative. Headlines this week read, shoppers pull back on spending and retail sales plummet, among other negative things. But when you actually look at the numbers from a retail perspective, things actually don't appear as bad as they were let on. And honestly, you could even make an argument that there was strength in retail through November, given the circumstances. Now, again, we all know that October retail sales were impressive. Fed data showed that but also everything we've heard from retailers on earnings calls throughout November indicated that October sales were very high as a result of some of those early deals, as a result of some of the Prime Day spillover. November's numbers mark a continuation of that, although not to the same extent, and that's why you see a slight sequential drop. And first, you know, I want to talk about this Fed data because when you look at it, it includes car sales, it includes other things. We on the podcast prefer to break out retail trade sales separately from automobile and restaurant sales, which the Fed's top-line numbers do not do. So keep in mind, when you see these headlines, although it's referred to as retail sales, really you've got automobiles, restaurants factored in there, and we all know restaurant sales not so good, especially sequentially with more orders in place, closing restaurants or closing dine-in restaurants at the very least. Additionally, you know we don't look at sequential numbers a whole lot, especially in a year such as this where you had that fluidity, where you have things opening and closing on a pretty consistent basis. So again, headline everywhere was a 1.1% drop in consumer spending, but that was a drop sequentially from October. And again, October a month in which Prime Day occurred, in which retailers were pushing holiday sales earlier, and that encouraged really record retail spending for the month of October when you look at all the past Octobers in history. So let's look at the numbers from November. Retail trade sales, independent from automobile sales, including restaurants, those were down 0.8% sequentially. Again, doesn't take into account the drop in spending at restaurants and bars, which were down 4% sequentially from October. By the way, year over year, restaurants and bars down 20%. So negative number certainly for that industry. In any case, the year-over-year numbers, which we're more given to look at on the podcast. If you listen to the podcast, 
at any length of time, you know that for retailers, for macro level data, we're more given to look at year over year numbers. Retail trade sales up a whopping 7.1% in November 2020 from November 2019. That is substantial. And of course, it's in light partially of that restaurant falling back, also fall back in spending in other categories. But when you look at this for retail trade sales, this makes the NRF's very bullish numbers look possible for holiday spending. After all, the National Retail Federation came out with late projections that forecast a holiday spending increase of anywhere between 3.6% to 5.2%. Granted, by the time the NRF made this prediction, many things were at least partially settled. You had a slight bit more clarity, although some would argue that, regarding the election. You had a slight bit more clarity regarding the potential for a vaccine versus some of the numbers that came out from the likes of, let's say, Deloitte, which came out very early on. And even other analysts said, hey, spending could happen in a very wide range this year simply because of those macro factors. Now, we don't talk about numbers for the entire country often on the show. So we did want to discuss some of the specific categories that were up year over year for November because this will help to frame some of our coverage of individual companies over the next couple of months. No surprise here, non-store retailers were up 30% November 2020 over November 2019, including the likes of Amazon and Chewy. Meanwhile, we saw a continued uptick in year-over-year grocery sales. Those were up 7.86% in aggregate. However, when you look at growth in the sector, this is reflective of some of that slowing growth we've been noting. We've talked about grocery earnings calls where same-store sales numbers really in the high single digits rather than the mid-teens as they so often were throughout the summer. Home improvement retail, though, that continues to look strong. We were talking about Ace and Home Depot and Lowe's revealing same-store sales up in the 20% range during the latest quarter. Well, things look good again in November. Those were up 17.2% year over year. Also, sporting goods and hobby stores, two other categories that we've talked about seeing a major boost due to the pandemic. Those continue to look strong. They saw a 14% boost year over year as well. Now, one of the interesting things I noted is that furniture sales down about 6% year to date as a result primarily of those early pandemic days and the summer. But they, too, turned things around and saw an increase year over year in November. It was around 1% to 2%, but a positive there for furniture stores as, again, more of that nesting phenomenon coming into play from retail shoppers. Meanwhile, the biggest drops came from apparel. No surprise there, 19.1% down year over year for November. Department stores were nearly 20% down. And electronics and appliance stores, this is interesting because this is kind of the opposite of the nesting phenomenon we talk about in furniture and home goods. But those stores saw decreased sales year over year of 10%. Now, again, this is all preliminary data, so there are certainly margins of error to deal with. But when taken in aggregate, what does all this mean? Well, as we mentioned, we've talked to a number of data and projections providers regarding the holiday season. Nearly everyone said that holiday sales would hinge on mounds of macro factors. We've talked about them already. Vaccine progression, the election, many other things. What we're seeing then is maybe less of a linear pullback that was suggested by the headlines that came out this week, given October's stellar showing year over year. In general, retail trade sales being up 7.1% year over year might be a provisional sign that macro factors may be breaking in the favor of retailers, but we should remain cautious going forward. 
It's a possibility. We talked about the huge jump in non-store sales. There may not be as pronounced a last-minute shopping surge for those retailers this year, especially since there's already the supply chain crunch. We're already past the date where a lot of e-commerce retailers, a lot of e-commerce pure plays out there have told shoppers they'd need to submit orders by last week, in fact, to receive them by Christmas and to be sure to receive them by Christmas. Now, obviously, it doesn't go for all retailers. Amazon, Chewy, they've got better distribution systems, and you look at the retail stores, the brick-and-mortar retail stores that have their own last-mile platforms or partner with other companies for last-mile platforms. Obviously, they've got a little bit more leverage in that space, but it is very possible we see a bit more of a pullback in spending than expected in late December, and things might not look generally as rosy as they appear at the moment. But at least I would suggest that the headlines that we saw this week might not be as negative as we would be reasonably led to believe. So that'll do it for our news segment here for this midweek podcast. Coming up in our interview, Melissa Wong, CEO of Retail Zipline, joins us to talk about retail communication, not only the Retail Zipline platform, but just the scope of retail communication, what it looks like in 2020 versus, say, 2010 or 2000. And I think Melissa's got some great perspective in this area of the retail industry. Even before COVID, the ways in which retail associates communicated with management and each other was changing. But now, especially with so many things like local regulations to bring up something that's topical, changing at a moment's notice, it's especially important for everyone within a retail organization to be able to communicate instantly with one another and efficiently delegate tasks as needed. To discuss this rapidly changing world of retail associate communication, we're pleased to be joined by Melissa Wong, the CEO of Retail Zipline. Retail Zipline, just as a bit of a background, serves various retail clients, including American Eagle, Sephora, and one of our show's favorite regional grocers, Hy-Vee. Melissa, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So first, as we so often do during these interview segments, I want to ask you just a little bit about Retail Zipline. What do you do on the day-to-day basis and how do you help retailers with this communication process? Great. So I think, you know, at a high level, Retail Zipline really is the new operating system for retail store communications and operations. That's quite a mouthful, right? So you're like, well, what does that really mean? And to really take you through that, I'll actually bring you through my origin because I actually spent a decade specifically in retail communication and store communication and operations. And one of the things that I found in my decade within brands is that the company would be sending down information regarding marketing or merchandising, promo changes, recalls, and we'd send it down, right? It'd be at the end of the quarter and the executives would walk into the store the next day and they'd be like, I get a call myself. Why didn't the store actually do the thing we asked them to do? It's material to the business. And I'd say, well, we sent down the communication and they'd said they didn't see the memo or the store said there was too many places for too much information. And really what we found is that the lack of execution was a result of no good ways to actually have a clear channel of communication from headquarters down to the stores and even enabling the communication, what you pointed out, within the store itself, because the store is a pretty unique environment where work is changing from one person to another. 
So, you know, that's a, a very long-winded way of talking about what we're doing, but we're really bringing better execution and better engagement into store teams to align them behind strategic objectives. And you bring this up, really, there's communication on two fronts, one from corporate to the individual store, and then second, within the individual store ecosystem when you're looking at a brick-and-mortar environment. And let's look at that store ecosystem for a moment. What are some of the ways in which, even before COVID hit, intra-associate communication or intra-store communication has changed in retail over the last decade? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've just begun, I think the consumer trends have set higher expectations for how communication happens within a store, intra-store. And, you know, when I was in retail, you know, a decade ago, 10 years ago, a lot of the communication that happened within a store was through post-it notes, right? I'm signing my name also on, you know, printed out pieces of communication to acknowledge that I've read the message or that I understand what's asked of me. Now we're beginning to see a lot more digitized, real-time communication that's happening in a store, either by a store manager and their team picking up some sort of consumer technology where there really is no actually ability for headquarters to see the conversations that are happening within the store. So that can sometimes be a problem. Or by corporate teams buying communication technologies for their store teams to talk between each other in a more agile and real-time way, essentially replacing a lot of the old PDFs, the sticky notes, et cetera. So a definite move, I think the consumerization of enterprise technology you know, began a while ago, but we're beginning to see a lot more wider adoption of those, especially in the past couple of years. A topic that we've talked with interviewees about in the past is maybe the use of consumer technology as a communication tool as it pertains to the retail store. And there are some retailers out there that I know that I've talked to that may be hesitant to say like, oh, well, we don't want our associates using their own technology. And so they bring in this maybe bespoke technology. In terms of the retailers that you interface with, the retailers that you talk to, how are they finding different ways to implement this technology such that it works for them and and their paradigm? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a lot of the most successful implementations that we've seen or heard of, both from, you know, people implementing Zipline as well as other store technologies has really been to kind of like try before you buy. I think from a store adoption perspective, making sure that end users really like the tool themselves, right? And they find that it enables them to work in an easier way is an incredibly important part of that equation. You know, we've also seen individual store teams pick up maybe point solutions and use that for their team. But then what becomes really hard is for an headquarters or a district manager or regional director to really get a line of sight into the conversations that are happening within, you know, a specific four walls and how they can really help kind of remove some of the roadblocks. So the hardest technologies to implement are the enterprise technologies where everyone's on the same page, everyone's on the same platform. People, you know, as roles and responsibilities get changed in store or districts and regions, the technology can actually help align to the different ways that the hierarchy is aligned. But it is harder to roll out and adopt than some of the store-specific point pieces that they might pick up from what they use in their consumer lives. Now, something you talked about in the answer to really what Retail Zipline does is the fact that retail is 
so much different from so many other types of you know, jobs or professions that might be adopting certain technologies because there are other communication technologies that are out there. Why is it important for retailers to have something, a technology like Retail Zipline, that is specific to what is being done on the retail front? Yeah, well, there are a couple of pieces. One, I think retail is under a unique pressure, right? So especially in the past year, I think with COVID, we've seen a lot more complexity with regulations, right? So you'll have like five to seven different governing bodies on a local basis, like health inspectors, fire departments, tobacco, firearm inspectors, everyone's walking into stores looking at different things. And there's a lot more complexity that retailers have to manage to. And also the customer's expectations for how retailers should meet their needs has been a lot more complex. So when you look at the need for an organization to implement communication systems, you need to make sure that everyone's on the same page with all of these localized initiatives going on. The only way to do that is to implement kind of like an enterprise-wide communication system that segments information by role, by location, by your job, so that people are all on the same page. What's you know specific to everyone in the company? And then for me and my role, what's important for me to execute and to do in my job that supports the overarching company vision or direction as things have really been changing. That's some great insight. And I want to dig into that just a little bit deeper because there are changes certainly or differences between retail and other professions, but there's also differences in between retailers. And I mentioned it in the open, American Eagle, Sephora, Hy-Vee, they're all very different retailers along with the other retailers that you serve. What are some of the differences in terms of making sure that all of these different retailers get what they want out of a platform like Retail Zipline? Yeah. So I think from a difference perspective, I think it really boils down to how does each different retail organization manage the roles and responsibilities within a store? For example, if you're a grocer, the butcher needs different information than the produce person. But once you take a step back from the individual roles within a store, there are many similarities, right? I think there are more similarities than differences because you need a line of sight up to the district managers, to the regional directors, and mostly to headquarters around, are the decisions I'm making from a headquarters perspective, are they getting executed in store? What does it look like? Are they executing up to my expectation? And whether or not I'm a retailer like Sephora that has like a high-end brand feel, right, where it's a very elevated, or if I'm kind of like a scrappier retailer, maybe like Old Navy, overall, what all brands are trying to achieve is bring that brand promise to the customer and use the store team and the associates as like the best brand advocates. And the differences between the retailers are in which associates are responsible for which things. But ultimately, it's a lot more similar between retailers than you might expect. I want to pivot here a little bit to the last nine months or so, let's say. We've obviously had a lot of retailers that have had great reason to use communication devices with their associates, as we referenced in the introduction. You've had COVID, you've had protests, you've had obviously a number of different things that go on that don't maybe happen in a typical year. What are some of the ways in which retailers have used 
this communication platform to ensure that associates know everything they need to know in real time? Yeah. So for us, we actually break down communication into four different communication pillars. And we think that this intent-based communication channel is what provides clarity for people on the things that they should know and the things that they should do on a day-to-day basis. So for us, that breaks down into like what you need to know. So that could be letters from the president. That's what you need to do, like setting up marketing. There's evergreen resources like policy procedure, et cetera, inland dialogue, discussion, and debate. So as we look at, you know, what's happened over the past 60, 90 days, for us, the need for communication channels that really enable people to understand and act in a more nimble way and have more of a line of sight into what they need to do at their specific location is the most important thing because it relates to a lot of the health and safety regulations and the complexity that we're seeing there. I'm curious, too, because, again, as we talked about, a lot of this type of technology just didn't exist 20 years ago. It was many times paper-based or orally-based, the communication within stores. What's the feedback been like for the retailers that you work with from the associates as far as how much they either enjoy the platform or feel as though the platform brings about a greater sense of accountability? So, surprisingly for us, like, Our store teams and associates are our greatest advocates. And for us, we exist to be in service to stores. And I think exactly what you're saying that, you know, technology like this didn't exist 20 years ago. And what we're doing from a digitization perspective is really automating some of those manual things that people have to do and saving them time so that they can focus on the things that are the most important to them. Like our store teams didn't sign up to work in stores because they love like searching for the PDF file (laughs) to put up the marketing or, you know, being in the back room trying to piece together what the expectation is. Like our store teams joined the brands because they believed in the brand and they really loved being in front of the customer. And so for us, from a zipline perspective, we really encourage pilots. We've had 100% pilot conversion and that's from feedback from the store teams, right? Like this product was specifically built for the store user in mind. It wasn't necessarily, you know, built with, you know, IT. Like we're really there to like help people do their jobs better and easier and kind of bring the way that people work into the 21st century. I'm curious if there's maybe an example or a couple of examples of best practices that since this technology has begun to be implemented in retailers that have really stood out to you where you look and say, that's a really excellent use of this technology, maybe above and beyond just what meets the eye when you first look it over. Yeah. So I think, you know, from a best practice perspective, and like when you're talking about what's happened in the past six, nine months, one of the the practices that we had already begun to see even pre-COVID was retailers beginning to communicate in a more fluid way. So in the past, I think, you know, in the past 10 years, everyone's had the PDF packets, right? They'd send them out weekly or bi-weekly and, you know, the stores would expect to receive it on a certain day. Then they'd plan out the things and expect to do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of these updates would happen and that would throw off what people understood that they needed to do on a day-to-day basis. More recently, and especially with COVID, we're seeing people move to a daily cadence of communicating to their stores on a more ongoing basis versus just trying to bundle things together into these huge 
like miniature binders almost. And that's a result of the business and the environment changing on a day-to-day basis. So that's one best practice. I think another best practice that we've seen is really changing the way that people communicate. So instead of just saying like, do this thing, or this is a task, it's really engaging with the store teams in a more multimedia and kind of consumerized way. So some of our brands like Lego, they put gifts into their communication to really connect with the store teams in a more human way to say like, oh, your inventory is late again. We understand it's so frustrating. And instead of it being corporate speak, it's like with a GIF, right? Or it's with an emoji. So just, I guess, keeping it real (laughs) and kind of knocking down the divide between what's traditionally been silos between headquarters and stores. So to finish up here, I just wanted to circle back to something you mentioned kind of at the very beginning, which is that technologies like this enable a little bit more of a two-way street in many times in that upper management and headquarters and so forth can actually get maybe a little bit more data on not just completion of tasks, but they can pick up some insights as well into what's happening on the store level. What are some things that you've noticed in terms of the companies that you work with picking up on some of those insights at the store level that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise noticed? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And I really think that it's a combination of both the quantitative and the qualitative that enables organizations to make better decisions. And you have data on the task compliance. I think an interesting stat that we have is that across the industry, only 29% of stores actually execute the thing on average. And so just with that task completion, you're actually able to get more insight into whether or not is your marketing working, right? Your traffic might be going down, your sales might be going up, but then what does your execution look like? It makes a big difference whether or not, you know, 30% of your stores did the thing or 90%. And so that's on the data side, but on the qualitative side, some of the more interesting insights that our brands have found is in getting feedback from the field, it's understanding the why behind the data, right? So a merchant might be testing out certain product lines for a new assortment in the spring. And they might be seeing that the sell-through isn't as high as they thought. So just being able to chat with the store team or the pilot stores and say, why isn't this product selling through this much? Or if they have an RFID system and they see a product going back to the fitting room uh, 20 times and the conversion is only one out of 20, being able to have that conversation with the store teams and get that qualitative feedback, what is it about the product where the customers bring it into the fitting room, the conversion should be high, but they're actually not going through the checkout with it? Is it that the fit's weird? Is the color a little bit off? Are the inseams different than you know their traditional size? That qualitative piece and feedback married with the data is what's enabling people to make better decisions. Great stuff. Once again, Melissa Wong, the CEO of Retail Zipline. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts.
Well, we thank Melissa once again for joining us on the podcast. A lot of great insight, as we mentioned. I think associate to associate communication is so crucial and so key, as is communication from higher levels, from management, from headquarters and so forth to the individual stores. Just because a store mentions something on an earnings call and says, hey, we've accomplished this and our stores on the earnings call doesn't necessarily mean they've accomplished it. In fact, many times we see the exact opposite where, as Melissa mentioned, it might be accomplished in 20 to 30 percent of stores because communication breaks down or that communication from corporate to the individual employees set to execute those tasks didn't quite work out. So it's important for retailers to have kind of a bespoke platform on which they can shuttle work along to the individual stores, and it assures a more uniform presence, I think, from store to store within a given chain. So a lot of interesting facets brought up in that interview, and once again, thank Melissa for joining us. Now, our looking ahead story this week has to do with Shoe Palace. Shoe Palace, largely based in the western United States, Around half of their stores are located in California. It was announced this week that JD Sports Fashion PLC, often known as just JD Sports, has purchased the Shoe Palace Corporation in a deal worth $325 million. Now, you'll recall JD Sports actually was the company that acquired Finish Line, who had been up and down in years prior to that acquisition back in 2018. It was great timing for JD Sports because although we don't get finish line earnings, certainly sneaker culture has boomed over the last couple of years. And yes, we see this on the secondary market, but we see it on the primary market as well. So they are trying to extend this. Now, it's interesting because Shoe Palace was primarily a family organization. It was run by the Mershow family and the CEO of Shoe Palace is currently George Mershow. Now, the Mershow family will remain in charge. They'll continue to operate Shoe Palace, but it's said that they're going to try over the next two to five years to put in some synergies. That's the fun word anytime you talk about an acquisition between Shoe Palace and the other extensions for JD. And honestly, when you look at some of the quotes coming from this purchase, a lot of Shoe Palace executives were talking about the fact that, hey, now we can partner with Finish Line. What it means for Shoe Palace, and the reason I'm looking ahead to it is, does this mean that they now, operating under the banner of a much larger company, have more open up to them as far as supply? Because we all know that supply sometimes for sneakers, for these in vogue items, isn't easy to come by. And so can they parlay this partnership into getting not only more supply because their inventory levels are likely fine based on the visits I've made to Shoe Palace stores, but can they get the items that are more in demand and as a result command higher margins on those items? Now, that'll remain to be seen, but certainly that's something to look ahead to. How much will we see these synergies kind of bear out? Will any Shoe Palace stores be closed in favor of nearby stores with the finish line? Or will vice versa happen? So a lot of interesting things here in the footwear space, but in this case, a private company being sold to another corporation, JD Sports, such an internationally known brand. They're UK-based. If you watch the Premier League over in England, you'll see their patch certainly adorning a handful of Premier League jerseys. So again, just something to keep in mind, especially if you're out there on the West Coast near one of the more than 80 
stores located in California for the brand. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. We'll also look ahead to Sunday's podcast. We're going to talk to a professor from Wharton University of Pennsylvania, and they're going to join us to talk about retail onboarding, how it's changed during the pandemic, and more importantly, how seasonal onboarding changed from October through November. It'll be an interesting interview, and we're looking forward to that hitting on Sunday's show. For Late and Behind the Scenes, I'm Trent saying so long until Sunday. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.